Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and, with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. He despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I will give, you, give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over over the Philistine with a a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is the word of the Lord. Many thanks, Pam, for reading to us. And good morning to you all. Lovely to have you here with us. Lovely to be with you 
on the stream this morning as well. I'd like to begin by telling you about Lieutenant William Leaf Robinson. It was the 2nd of September 1916, in the middle of the First World War, and Londoners were huddled in underground shelters in fear of the bombs being dropped by the German Zeppelin airships. It was still in the earliest days of airborne combat, and uh, though there were few things bigger or, frankly, more ponderous than a Zeppelin, the aircraft of the Flying Corps weren't much good either. Uh, they were ill-suited to flying in the dark. Uh, they were easily outclimbed by any airship. And, of course, on top of that, the mere task of getting a person and an aircraft into the air and landing it safely again uh, just generated a significant likelihood of crash landing and or loss of life. Well, that night, Robinson took off at 11 p.m. And after a couple of rather uneventful hours, he caught sight of a Zeppelin in a pair of searchlight beams. And though by this time he was desperately short of fuel, he gave chase and he closed in on it and emptied two drums of ammunition into the airship. Well, it flew on unhindered, seemingly impregnable. He broke off, but then he made another attack from behind and fired his last drum uh, into the airship's twin rudders. First, uh, a reddish glow appeared inside the airship, and then moments later, the whole thing burst into flames. And thousands of Londoners looked up and cheered as it plunged from the sky. Indeed, within hours, the whole city was in celebration on what became known as Zepp Sunday. For many, it was one of the finest moments of the war. As the first pilot to bring down this Zeppelin, uh, the airman's face was all over the papers. Uh, he was shortly given a Victoria Cross, uh, the first to be won uh, in or at least over the United Kingdom. And the, the narrative was just so compelling. Here was Lieutenant Leif Robinson. He pitted his tiny little aircraft against this giant Zeppelin and had won. And so everyone hoped, and indeed it turned out, signaled and symbolized a great turn in the fortunes of that war. Now, if you're into military history, you'll know that that's not the only David and Goliath story that you can find. And it does us good to retell them, doesn't it? Simply so that we may be grateful for the extraordinary courage, the acts of bravery that stand behind the peace that followed and that we enjoy. But of course, they make us think back to the original David versus Goliath. And at first reading, this very familiar and popular story feels very much like the Leif Robertson against the Zeppelin kind of exploit. It feels like the story of the underdog. There is the inordinate size of uh, the champion Goliath. We're told he was six cubits and a span. Verse 3 says, now scholars argue whether that means he was nine foot or six foot nine. I think either way one can agree that he's quite large. He was enormously tall and, and pretty large in the other direction as well. Um, verse 5 tells us he carried 5,000 shekels or 50 kilos worth of armor. And then there's the drama that we can all imagine of the suggested battle plan. Verse 8 tells us, choose a man and have him come down to me, says Goliath, 
If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. One little Israelite against one massive Goliath. And the whole fate of a nation decided in that moment. Well, when David appears, uh, his appearance hardly improves things. He is, of course, a shepherd. And he only appears, actually, as the food delivery boy. Verses 17 and 18 tell us he's carrying some grain, 10 loaves of bread, 10 cheeses for their commander. Uh, presumably he's there because the fearful father worries about his grown boys. At least he thinks, well, let's send them some food. And to further emphasize David's unlikely stature, we have this, there's this wonderful moment. We didn't hear it read just now, but um, it's a very relatable moment where the grumpy older brother dismisses David. His, his name is Eliab. And he says to David, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David, you're unbelievable. This is not football. You don't just come down here to watch the game. This is for grown men. Get out and go home. And so when David starts to kind of give his courageous speech, the words are almost laughable. Verse 32, he says, David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. You can almost sort of hear the, the king's advisors just oozing their sarcasm, can't you? Uh, well, quite, David, because you know, we were really losing heart. But then, of course, you came, and now that you're here, what with your experience of sheep and everything, we're, we're really definitely taking courage. But little did they know. But the contrast gets played out a bit further for now. Chainmail uh, is what Goliath has. No armor at all for David. Um, Goliath has an armor bearer, a shield bearer. David doesn't even have a, have a shield for someone to bear. Uh, Goliath has a six kilo iron spearhead. David has five smooth stones from the brook. It's quite the story of the underdog, isn't it? And yet, of course, as we know, David slays Goliath. Reaching into his bag, taking out the stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. And then did you notice that bit afterwards? It's pretty grim, isn't it? Wartime is never nice, and it certainly was no good, no, not any nicer then. Uh, David triumphs over the Philistine with a sling and stone. Without a sword, it tells us he struck him down and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Why does our narrator say that? Isn't it extraordinary? Someone without even a sword, so ill-equipped for the task of war, he hasn't got a sword. He has to borrow Goliath's sword, and yet he seals the victory. It's all the hallmarks of the victory of the underdog. Now, we're familiar with that story. But here's a question. Is that actually the story? And it matters because this is the story of the way of God with the people of this world. Is it really just about the victory of the underdog? Now, it's tempting at some level, definitely, and it's fair enough to see it like that. But there are some problems with that approach. Ask yourself, with that kind of angle on the story, what would be the take-home for us? We might go home and think, you too can slay your giants when you find your inner five pebbles. Now, 
here's my problem with that particular narrative. When I line up against the Goliaths in my life, I tend to miss often more than five times. When I think about the story in this way, this is actually the story of a young boy who has some epically misplaced self-confidence, but he gets away with it. So what is actually going on in this story? Well, there's more to it than the victory of the underdog. I think the deeper point, or at least one deeper point our writer wants to get across, is that, in fact, the victory is that of the God-fearer. The victory belongs to the God-fearer. Back to our man, Leif Robinson, um, for a moment. When I read about him, a moment of sort of preacher's serendipity, if you like, I got rather more than I bargained. As he writes about his, that evening, the account continues that after six, seven weeks on the victory parade, he, he got in touch with his parents. He wrote to them. And he wrote them this. He said, as I watched the huge mass gradually turn on end, and as it seemed to me slowly sink one glowing, blazing mass, I gradually realized what I had done and grew wild with excitement. When I had cooled down a bit, I did what I don't think many people would think I would do. And that was I thanked God with all my heart. You know, I'm not what is popularly known as a religious person, but on an occasion such as that one, one must realize a little how much one does trust in providence. I felt an overpowering feeling of thankfulness, so it was strange that I should pause and think for a moment and thank from the bottom of my heart that supreme power that rules and guides our destinies. In fact, when you think about it, David, too, is not just an underdog. He is the one who recognizes and fears God. Those famous verses from the middle of the story that we heard just read. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Do you see what he's really, really bothered about? He says, all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give all of this into our own hands. So David is really the one who is, his victory comes because he's a God-fearer. David is the one who is so concerned for God's honor. He's appalled, not so much by this Philistine champion that he would defy the nation of Israel, what he's really appalled by is this, this Philistine champion would defy his God. This Philistine Goliath would suggest that the lifeless idol Dagon, that was the God of the Philistines, is going to look like the triumphant God over the world-creating God of Israel. I wonder whether you ever have a sense of God's honor like that. But David doesn't just want to honor God. He, he recognizes God's power. We get to that moment when he picks up the sling. The point is not so much that David has confidence in his own slingshot skills that no one yet knows about. Actually, he's confident because he recognizes God is going to determine the outcome. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. It's not unlike Leif Robinson, actually, although on a much deeper level. He says, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's wonder what your great trials and tribulations are right now. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure you have them. 
we might say it was a David versus Goliath type of contest. But you know, I don't think David would have recognized that phrase. You see, he said, I, 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 you don't understand, I think would have been his perspective. It never was a David versus Goliath contest. When I, David, went out to face Goliath, it was the living Lord and me, his servant, versus an imaginary God and his. So, yes, the odds were stacked, but actually they were stacked towards me. And that's why it turned out the way it did. And in that sense, rather than the victory of the underdog, I guess this text is much sooner really the victory of the, the God-fearer. And that challenges us in some slightly different ways, doesn't it? It begs the question, do we believe in a sovereign God who can order our days? Does the Lord's hand still hold our destiny? We've had a moment of great national and international upheaval in these last couple of years, haven't we? We often feel in those moments we must depend on one who is much greater. We've faced questions about eternity and destiny and life and death. COVID has brought them very close. But they're actually everywhere all the time. Whatever you're struggling with, I wonder, do you believe, have you seen that your days are ultimately in God's hands and that you can entrust them to him? that you can practically believe and trust each moment of your life into the hands of the one who made you and who loves you. But even as, as I say that, I wonder whether we still feel a little bit uneasy with the story. Because if we think about those further along those lines, I think we come to an even deeper truth. If David's great gift was to recognize that the battle is the Lord's, it begs the question, doesn't it? And perhaps this is very acute for you today. What about the battles that we feel we lose? Quite poignant for me on this day. I'm half German, half British. So when I read a story of Leif Robinson celebrating the descent of that glowing mass of a Zeppelin, yeah, I can understand. No more bombs dropped on London. But what about the 16 German crew members? and their families? What about the women who were widowed, the children orphaned in that? What would it mean for them that the battle is the Lord's? And what of all the British civilians who never lived to see the celebrations of that day because their lives were forever devastated by some other event? And what of the injustice that you have suffered where you trusted in the Lord but still you suffered? The injustice that seems never to have turned out for your good? What are the courageous stand that you took for Christ because you fear God and then it just cost you a lot, dearly? And in the end, you can't quite see what it counted for. And what about the many times when you and I don't fear God? When perhaps things turned out fine for us, but actually the deal went through well or we nailed the exam or... We organize the perfect get-together completely oblivious to the Lord in those moments. And frankly, we were much more Goliath then than we were David. What do we make of the story then? Is God's slingshot waiting around the corner for us? Well, on one level, of course, each of us as sinners, yes, it should. But it does not have to. Because actually, there is a much deeper and I think more wonderful truth in this story still. 
far beyond the victory of the underdog, far beyond the victory of the God-fearer. This account of David and Goliath is about the unique victory of God's anointed one, God's king. David's victory is like a, a representative victory that brings blessing and freedom to many others. There's this great moment where David says to Saul, um, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with Philistine. And it's like the narrator has lined up the two kings. Here's the old one who wasn't so much good. He was very tall, by the way, great person to face Goliath, but the Lord's Spirit had left him. And next to him, the small one, the shepherd king, whom Samuel actually had already anointed as his successor. And so David wins, not because he's an ace with a pouch and stone, nor even simply because he fears God, but not every God-fearer wins that way, but because he's been chosen. He's been anointed by God to have the victory. Now, why do I make such a big deal of this ancient story, 3,000 years old, on this day today? Because 900 years after, a new king was born, the king of the Jews, for that matter. His name was Jesus. And he, too, cut a very unlikely figure as a combatant for his people. He was a lowly carpenter, no great general. But he was a king and a warrior at that, and one who would fight alone. He would fight on behalf of all his creation against sin and the devil. And his preparation for the fight was similarly not very compelling. Do you remember he was whipped and beaten by Roman soldiers on the way into battle? But unlikely though he was, and though so many who saw him were convinced he was a goner, he won. And though he gave his life, his God, the Father, raised God the Son back to new life and a new rule. And he didn't just raise him. On the cross, he defeated sin. He dealt with guilt. He won, and here's the most important bit for us. He won on behalf of all people. He won on behalf of all his people. And when he rose again, again, he rose not just on his own, but as the first one of a great multitude of everyone who knows Jesus Christ, who also will be raised. And today, on a day when we remember our loved ones, when we feel the pain of parting so acutely, that is the most wonderful message of hope for each of us. In that sense, what David did that one day for all the people of Israel, Jesus Christ did the same thing on the cross, once and for all, for all humanity. And so in Jesus, we see supremely that the victory of God's anointed. So I want to ask you this morning, as, as I close, are you with this Jesus? Are you with this Jesus? Um, is he your king? Is he the one who fights for you? Do you boast in his victory? Perhaps that's a very strange question for you. You've never heard it put like that before. I'd love to speak to you more about that or perhaps speak to a friend after this. Perhaps it's, an, it's a question you have been asked before and you've said yes. And I just want to encourage you today to just make that victory your own again. 
Because if Jesus is your king, you may say of the, the very worst that time and eternity may bring your way. And I know today is a day when, for many of us, we grieve a great deal and there is sadness amongst us. The battle is the Lord's. And he will win it. Your ultimate safety is utterly secure. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.